we're looking at a series called Our Magnificent Jesus and this week we're looking at the subject of Jesus came to serve. So if you've got a Bible, uh, can you turn with me to Mark chapter 10, Silas, behave, uh, verse 45, and uh, Silas was the one who humiliated me at badminton and if he puts anything like that again on Facebook, we'll just have him up the front here dancing again. <laughs> It's just as simple as that. So unless the remarks are removed, Silas, this will be where you will be in full costume, as we have seen, with the Bangra music in front of us all. Okay. You, you think that I jest? We would like to see that, wouldn't we? Oh, I see. <laughs> yeah. Okay, Mark chapter 10 and verse 45. Uh, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom uh, for many. Uh, This is, uh, I find, uh, a spectacular truth about the coming of the Son of Man, that he came not to be served, but to serve. It's I've, just that catches me. That he came not to be served. The King of kings, the Lord of lords, the, the creator of heaven and earth. He came not to be served, but to serve. And the reason this is so important to see is that in the preceding verses, Jesus had laid in some radical expectations of his disciples. He had told, if you remember the story, James and John, that they would be required to drink a cup of his suffering. That's verse 39. And he told the other 10 disciples that if they wanted to be great in the kingdom, they must become a servant of all. So he's expecting them to be radically different from the way in which we ordinarily act. They are called to serve all people, even non-Christians. There's no discrimination here. We want you to serve all people. And by the way, in serving all people, it will be described as a cup of my suffering. And I don't know whether anybody told you this. I, I often feel that it's something that we should say when we're leading people to Christ is this, that following Jesus will cost us. It will cost us our lives. It's not a happy ticket. It's what can often be sort of portrayed. Come and, come and join these happy folk. They're, they're happy. It's not what Jesus said. Jesus said the cost is enormous if you want to... Uh, follow me. Now, if serving were the only message of Christianity, it would not be good news. And often we live in a day where actually Christians who are being asked to serve is given as good news. The reason I say that is that if, if, if serving is only the message, then there is no gospel. And it is the gospel that changes people's lives, not that people serve one another. In fact, you can get great other religions that serve you. 
But our message is not just one of service, it is about the gospel. But also, if you think about the, the attitude of serving, don't we need more than someone just to tell us what we should be and what we should do? But more than that, I need help to do that. I need help to serve in the way that Jesus is describing to his own disciples. And Jesus says, the Son of Man did not come to serve, to be served, but to serve. And this is a call to learn how to be served by him. Now, don't miss this, because I believe this is at the heart of Christianity. And this is what sets our, if you like, faith apart from all other religions. Our God does not need our service. Nor is he glorified by a bunch of recruits that think that if they join him, that what will happen is that they can help him out on, on his purposes. Our God is so full and so self-sufficient and so overflowing in power and in life and in joy. Here's the catch that he brings glory to himself by serving us. Wow, that's extraordinary. And he does this in serving us by, as the Bible tells us in Philippians, by taking on a human nature and seeking us out as this person and then telling us that he did not come to get our service, but he came for the purpose of serving us. In other words, he's saying that he commanded that we be his servants and that we drink the cup of suffering in service and that's where he wants to serve us. What does that mean? It means thus, it means this, he serves us. So that will enable us to serve. He helps us so that that will enable us to help us. And the two are intrinsically connected. Because what happens often is that we don't realize that the purpose of the cross, the purpose of Jesus' servanthood, is so that we can then do that to one another, which is what Jesus was talking about when he was talking about his disciples. They cannot be separated. And as Christians, what we often do is that we want to delight in the fact that Jesus serves us, but we don't want to transport that into service for other people. But what Jesus said is that the the reason that I came and served you is so that I can empower you to serve other people. That was it. And actually, if you are just receiving this and not doing that, you are a deficient Christian. In fact, you just, you're not doing what Jesus asked you to do. So the best way that we can grasp this is to ask ourselves the question, how did Jesus serve us? And we see Firstly, that Jesus wants to serve us. Jesus wants to do it. That is extraordinary. That the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the creator of all things, the one who will return in all glory and all majesty, wants to serve us. Every time Jesus commands something for us to do, 
It is his way of telling us how he wants to serve us. Let me try and put this another way. Obedience is where Jesus meets us as our servant, carries our burdens, gives us his power so that we can be obedient. When you become a Christian, a disciple of Jesus, you do not become his helper. He becomes yours. You do not become his benefactor. He becomes yours. You don't become his servant. He becomes yours. Jesus doesn't need our help. And when he commands you to be obedient, he's doing that with an offer of help to be obedient. Hey, I want you to be obedient. And by the way, I'll help you to do that. Isn't that a wonderful thing? He's not saying, come on. And I, I come from quite a strict background, a strict religious background, where they just said to you, well, I need you to be obedient. And he kept thinking, I can't do this stuff. I can't be obedient. I constantly fail. And here's Jesus saying, I want you to be obedient, and I'm going to help you to do it. That's wonderful. And I find that this is why becoming a Christian is a very humbling thing. Because becoming a Christian means that we have to admit that we need help. We need help. We turn to Jesus and say, I can't be or do what I'm supposed to be and supposed to do. That's it. And therefore you come to the conclusion that I'm desperate with my life. But it's a wonderful place to be in. Because what you say is that I need something, some way beyond what is inside me or actually in any ordinary person to help me to live. And You say, therefore, I need you. I need you, Jesus. Because you realize that Jesus is the only source of help. I turn to you. You come and you say, I've nothing that I can bring to you, nothing that I can trade with you, nothing that I have to offer. I trust you to extend mercy to this desperate person who can't do life on his own. I trust you to be my servant. And when we do that, we submit to him in that way. And Jesus becomes our servant. And when he does, all of the other radical commands are no longer things that we do for, for him, but things that he enables us to do for other people. He's the enabling one. The Christian life is the life of serving others in the strength that he supplies as our servant. It's... it's Loving others in the love that he supplies as our servant. It's sacrificing and suffering for other people in the strength that he gives to us through his suffering and sacrifice. Christian living is as that song tried to portray, which I won't sing at the end, is walking in the shadow of the servant king. Where, where the way that he does it, okay, I want you to do that. Okay, I'll, I'll walk in your shadow. <coughs> but he's also saying, not only will, will I walk in your shadow, but he'll say, and I'll help you to do it. It's wonderful. 
Now, I know that the clever ones will say amongst you that the Apostle Paul called himself a servant of Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 1, verses 1. Now, this is not a contradiction of what Jesus is teaching here. Jesus himself uh, called us his servants. The servant is not greater than his Lord, or that neither he that sent us is greater than he that sent, us, that sent him. And the idea of a servant is used in two different contexts. How are we servants of Jesus? We are servants of Jesus in, in the way, firstly, that we submit to his authority and his right to tell us to do whatever he pleases. Because that's what the master does. Yeah, whatever you say, I'll do it. Whatever you want me to do, I will do it. You're the master, I'm the servant. That is the way in which it works. If it doesn't work like that in your life, then you're not a servant in the way that he intends you to be. But we're not in servants in the sense that he needs our help to make his household work, as it were, and his enterprises work. He doesn't need our energy or our power. He's not our servant uh, in the sense that we command him what he should do. He's our servant in the sense that he uses all his resources to help us, to strengthen us, to guide us, to support us, to provide for us. And the psalmist actually began to open this up in in a wonderful way. When the psalmist said this, he said, For me, Lord, you are an ever-present help in times of trouble. That's how he serves us. There's trouble. Okay, I'll come alongside you. Well, there's... Every, I'll, I'll just come alongside you and, and, and walk you through that. He's our servant because he gives to all men and all men life and breath and everything. I don't know how you woke up this morning, but I guess that what you didn't do was that you didn't uh, you didn't consciously open your eyes and think, "I'm breathing." Well, perhaps you did, but I mean, perhaps you might have done. You, you didn't move the legs across and head towards the loo thinking, I'm walking. That's just extraordinary. They were just things that you did. You probably went downstairs, you know, got the cornflakes out, put the milk on it. I don't know, that sort of stuff. Began to, But you didn't think it much a miracle that you did those things. You didn't, you didn't think, well, I'll go and have a shower or a bath or, a, or as my father used to say to me, have you had a strip wash? Whatever was one of them. That was always, have you had a strip wash? Well, what do you want me to do then, Dad? Wash with me clothes on? How do you do that? You, know, you, you didn't think when you were in the shower or the bath, or the, I think, hey, I'm showering this morning. That's a miracle. You didn't think anything of those. None of those things probably crossed your mind. You took everything from the sleep that you had to the arrival of here just for granted. You didn't think that anybody was enabling you to do what you did just as normal. In fact, the Bible quite clearly tells us that actually... That's where worship begins, a realization of these things. Acts chapter 17 and verse 25 uh, tells us about our serving God. He is not served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all men life and breath and everything. 
He is serving you right now. Right now. He's serving me right now. I am breathing because he, you might want me to stop, but I am breathing because he is serving me. You don't do at the petrol station, do you? You think, that's a bad smell. You just think, you, you don't think, come on, have you ever done that where you've just, you've been daydreaming and <laughs> going in the car, stinks, then it always goes on your hand, doesn't it? You try and wash it off and everywhere you go, you think you're the one smelling a petrol. Have you ever done that? But you don't think, the, the ability for me to smell that bad smell is because he is serving me. If he wasn't serving me, I wouldn't be smelling the smell, I'd be dead. But he is. In other words, God does not want to be served in any way. This is from the text there in Acts. In any way that implies that we are supplying need or supporting him. He wants to know that he is supporting us in every way. He will go on supporting you right now. And even if your life ends today... He will serve you by bringing you into paradise. He will make sure that you are brought in well. So even if you are not breathing and living and appreciating the toothpaste that you scrubbed your teeth with this morning, that he will bring you through to glory by serving you. He will make sure that you are well in heaven. Therefore, you see, I don't think we can negotiate with God. Have you ever done that? We have nothing of value that is not already his by right. I just think it's wonderful. I don't know whether you've ever been like this, but you know, sometimes I don't know if you've ever driven when the, when the lights go off on the car. You know, and these days, cars are very electronic, aren't they? I used to be from a mechanical background, so I used to know that if the red light came on, you could do this, the orange light came down. Now the whole dashboard lights up, and it all just grinds to a halt. And you just think, and I, I always think at that point, I can't do anything. Because you don't need a mechanic anymore, do you? You need some sort of electronic boffin or other, and they come and take this out and put that. And you just think, you know, his, his car's never going to break down. You know, he's never going to run out of petrol and be at the wrong place at the wrong time. <coughs> he's never going to have that dirty sort of clogged up engine that sort of used to happen in the old days of carburettors where you, where you sp- spat and spit across the road and jumped and all that sort of stuff. That's never going to be him because the Bible says that he never gets tired. He, he doesn't get depressed. He doesn't wait. Have you ever done that? Woken up this morning, in the morning and thought, why am I feeling like this? Have you not ever done that? You not thought... Why am I not happy this morning? What is that? Because you go to bed, don't you? And you think, I was all right. Steve Hawkins rang me and he confused me because I couldn't work out. He said, are you all right? And I thought, and I start, I don't know whether everybody asks you those questions. You begin to sort of say, well, am I all right? And I thought, and afterwards, I I thought, I said to Callie, should I ring you back? And she said, what are you going to do, lie? Uh, you know, we're going to ring him about, you know, that sort of stuff. Because you start and think, am I all right? What's wrong with me? But, you know, is, am, I, am I dying or is there something a problem? Because he asked you that question. Did I appear bad? Was I all right? It's, you start going on all that sort of stuff. No, you know, and because sometimes you just, you wake up in the morning and you think, don't cross me. Don't you do, do you, you're all sitting there, no, that never happens. Don't lie. It does, you wait, you just think, you just, you just think, you know, husband walks around the corner, here he comes. 
You know, that's sort of, and you think, what is that? What is that? God is never like that. He's never lonely, never hungry, never thirsty. He doesn't need anything. In other words, if you want what Jesus has to give, you can't buy it. You can't trade for it. You can't work for it. He already owns everything that you have. When you work, it's only because God has given you the life and the breath and the everything that you can do. Hey, I've got a job. Yeah, that's right. God gave it you. Hey, I've got a hope. Yeah, God gave it you. Everything is around it. You know, he is serving us all the time. And all we can do is say, this is spectacular. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. I'm breathing. I've got these things. And this submission is actually called faith. It's a willingness to let him be God, to say, yeah, I can see. He's the supplier. Yeah, I can see. He's the one that strengthened me in that situation. He's the one. Yeah, I, 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 that situation was so complex, but I, I, I went to him and I prayed about it. I looked in his word and he supplied me with some great wisdom. And, and yeah, I can see that he served me that way. Yeah, and there was this situation. Should I do that or should I do that? They sounded good. I said to the Lord, which way should I go? And he said, well, you know, you go that way. And you think, yeah, that's right. He's serving us all the time. And then he said, I'll serve you by giving up my life for you. Spectacular service. We'll come to that in a minute. That's what it means to be a Christian. It means that actually that what we do is that we realize that there is one who serves us 24-7, gave his life for us. And we receive what we need by being filled with the Spirit because it's the Spirit of Jesus. So my, my life is, the, the, the way that I get my life to work is by being filled with the Spirit so that I can, I can demonstrate the Spirit of Jesus. But now let's, uh, that was an introduction. Now let's uh, take on the, little, the specific act that we see here in Mark chapter 10. The Son of Man came uh, not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. His serving was intentional. It was an intentional act to serve you. It wasn't a persuasive act. It wasn't a negotiated act. It was an intentional act. What do I mean by that? It says that he came to do it. Jesus didn't come to earth for other reasons and then got caught up in a nasty plot by the Romans so that they killed him at all. It says that he came to die. It was his intention to serve you by dying for you. How can I serve these people on earth in history? I will die for them. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 14 puts it like this. He said, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has power of death, that is, the devil. Wow. And when you look back in Mark chapter 10, you, you encounter Jesus walking on the road. It says, walking on the road to Jerusalem. And you can imagine that there's Jesus walking on the road to J- J- Jerusalem. He's there with his disciples and they're heading towards that way. 
and he's told them that this is going to be the, the pinnacle of, of what he came to do. So there must have been a buzz amongst them. There must have been, for some, fear and for others, excitement. But they all suspect that once they go through those wonderful historic walls, that something is big is about to kick off. It's going to happen. And Jesus says this to them. I don't know whether you catch this. I don't know whether you ever look at this. It says, they were on the road to Jerusalem. And Jesus says this, we are going to Jerusalem. And you think, yeah. And you think, you, they must have looked at him at that point and just thought, yeah, I know that. That's the big place that we're heading towards. I know that we're not going to Jerusalem because we're not walking this way. It's a bit obvious, isn't it? You haven't smiled, but please read it and you can see later that it probably is a little bit of a Jesus wisecrack. Please read your Bible. There's a lot more humor in there than you'll find. Okay. And then, so they, he says, look, you know, see, we're walking to Jerusalem. Yeah, we got that. And then he turns to them and says, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes. And they must have looked at him at this point because they walk into Jerusalem and go, what? You, you mean the, the sort of guys in the garb? You know, that stuff, those guys. You mean the sort of ones with the funny hats and, you know, the, the, the sort of, you know, the, come on, Jesus. You know, we've we got to be better than this. You're telling us that those guys, we're going to be handed over to those. You know, even the Romans think that they're a bit strange. You know, come on, what, what is this? So there's a bit of a, a sort of thing going on. And he says, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, to the Romans. And they must have just thought at this point, what? We are going to Jerusalem so the funny dressed ones can hand you over to the Romans so that you will die. Well, could we not go to Bethlehem instead? You know, let's go somewhere else. We don't book a package holiday to Mallorca. Do we? You know, come on. And then he says, and we, and then they will mock me, they will spit on me, they will flog me, they will kill me, and after three days I will rise. So he tells them. And what they were getting into their being, what Jesus was trying to get into their being, was not the consequence of what was going to happen, but that Jesus is knowingly, deliberately walking into the jaws of suffering and death. That this is what he came to do. I'm going to Jerusalem and this is what it's going to be like. Jesus is choosing to suffer. He's choosing to die. He's participating intentionally in his own execution. He's not saying, you know, I'm going to do something wrong and then these guys are going to execute me. He's saying, no, I, I am going so that these guys can execute me. And this is how he serves you. In an intentional, deliberate act of suffering and death. This is the depth of his servanthood. Who serves you like this? Who serves you like this? It goes on and it says he serves us by his death, which is a ransom. But why is death called a ransom? It says the Son of Man came to give his life as a ransom for many. 
I think ransom's a great translation, actually, that's used at this point. Because the Greek word, uh, just for those ones that are, are cleverer than me, the Greek word is the Greek word lutron which means a, a payment to release someone from some kind of bondage. It's sort of like what you would pay to release a prisoner of war. So it's not a prisoner exchange, it's a prisoner payment. You have, you've got that. It's what you would do if you bought a slave. It's what you would do if you wanted to clear somebody's debt. So I want you to imagine that Denzel is hugely in debt. And what happens is that we have a leaders' meeting and we say, on behalf of Denzel, we are going to cancel his debt. That's exactly what was happen- happening here. So the implication is that the Jesus sees his death as a ransom to release many from the bondage that they're in. He's paying what you cannot pay so that you can go free. He's substituting himself for you at the cost of his life. He's doing this so that you can get the freedom that you now enjoy. He's saying, he's describing it as a substitution. He's saying that I, Jesus, will stand in the place of the many. And he serves us by saying and and doing, let me do this for you. Let me do this for you. I don't know whether anybody's ever been in a posh restaurant. I find posh restaurants a little bit difficult sometimes because the the person always stands just about, and they are ready to pounce, aren't they? I don't know if you've ever done this. When we, when we had our 25th wedding anniversary, Callie and I went away. And you almost get, uh, for a weekend, we, you almost get the, the, the waiter guy that sort of stands just about a yard away from your table. And you want to lean over to your wife and you say, he's got terrible spots. And you want to try and make something up just so that you can hear it and say, go on, how long are you going to stand there? And as soon as you go for anything like, napkin or that sort of he's tying it round your waist or you know you you put the the knife in the wrong position and he sort of you know looks at you and, and puts it down like this with a sort of you know, <laughs> you know don't don't do the gravy with the spoon you know all that sort of stuff and that sort of now come on hear this it is not service like this this is jesus who is saying let me do this for you. Let me do it for you. It is an extraordinary act. So, what are the many ransomed from? What are you, what are you ransomed? How has he served you? Jesus describes in John 8, 34, as us as enslaved to sin. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits a sin is a slave to sin. Now, I don't know whether the way that you think of sin, but often in today's society, sin is quite casual. You know, I, I was brought up, you know, to, to distinguish lies. There was a lie and there was a little white lie. That sort of stuff. And sin can be like that. You say, well, you know, sin is, sin is what they did, but not what I do. It's what they do over there. But the Bible tells us is that he did not see us as occasionally sinning but as under a power of sin. We're slaves to it. And we need to be ransomed from its power. 
Do you not feel sometimes the pull and the pressure of sin? Do you not feel sometimes that it, it, it is a bit too much of a force that, that is pulling you to say some things, to act in some particular way, to do some things? It feels if it's constant. And here he's saying, I want to serve you and help you with that. Let me serve you so that the pull and the pressure that you cope, you won't be coping with it and understanding it all on your own. We'll do this together, guys. Wow. But that's not the worst of it. Jesus taught that the penalty of sin is eternal punishment. Matthew 25, verse 46, he said, These things, things will go away, uh, the, sorry, these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. You see, your and my sin brings the wrath of God. It brings judgment. And if we don't find a rescue from the guilt of our sin, we will be punished. And Jesus says, forever. Because our sin is an infinite offence to God. It isn't just a sin is, it is an infinite offence against an infinite holy God. So slavery and the bondage that we need ransoming from is the slavery of sin and eternal punishment. What a wonderful servant that says, I want to serve you by helping you not to go into eternal punishment. That's extraordinary. I want to make sure that I do what I can to rescue that, to rescue you from that. I don't want you to live in the consequence of your sin. I don't want you to, I want you to live in this eternal punishment. So I will do whatever it takes so that you don't go there. Wow. The question is, how do we know that we need ransoming? Well, firstly, I want to suggest that your conscience tells you. <laughs> your conscience tells you that you can be a bit of an oaf. Secondly, the Bible does. Thirdly, he does. And I don't know whether you're like me, but sometimes we fall short of our own standards, don't we? We set ourselves a standard and we think, oh. And therefore, how much more would we have fallen short of God's standards? But what about the penalty of that? It's amazing how when we come to this issue of, the, of falling short of God's standards, you get people say this, I'm not worse than any other person. You get something like, my sins are only small compared with Rupert Leslie's. And some say, surely God would not condemn me because he's a loving God. They say eternal punishment and hell would be unjust. So how do you answer these huge life-changing questions that come at us almost all the time if you live in, in the, as, as what sometimes is described the world? The, the answer to this is, what are these? Are these what God says or are they the opinions of men? 
They are the opinions of men. They're not what God thinks or how God thinks that we should be saved at all. How do you respond to God? By doing what he says, not by constructing a salvation by what you say. Therefore, I want to suggest this. If you're not a Christian, don't make your own mind up whether you are going to eternal punishment or not, or going to eternal, uh, whether you're going to eternal heaven or not. Too much hangs on your opinion. Too much does. Eternal punishment, eternal heaven, too much depends on If it's your opinion. And why would God construct a method of salvation for you to say, but God, actually, it's better this way. No, the only way that you come through to salvation is doing what he said and submitting to him so that you can be saved. So look at the Bible for your answer. What does he say? What does he think? The Bible is very clear. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. That's what he says. And that's how he serves you, by dealing and preparing a way through that. So how does he do that? He does that by ransoming us. So when... What is the way in which he does that? Jesus said, The Son of Man came to give his life as a ransom for many. And he gives his life for many. That is, that he dies for the many. The ransom price is his life. The Bible constantly says, doesn't it? Christ died to save us. And yet sometimes it's almost as if, that you know, I'm bored this morning. You know, tell me something about the economy or tell me something about the, you know, that I really want to hear. Let me tell you, the only thing that is really important to hear this morning is this, that Christ died for your sins. There is no other important thing. There's no other gospel that we will move on to that will get better and suddenly we will move into a higher place and my fancy will be tickled and, and I will be stirred and all this sort of stuff. Why are you not stirred by the fact that Christ died for your sins it is the most spectacular and awesome truth on the face of this earth that such a person would give up all the glory of heaven and do that to serve you does it not stir you and catch you and thrill you and get you moving rather than thinking well perhaps in a little bit he'll move on to something that really applies to my life this thing applies to your life because it's this thing that saves you and keeps you in his kingdom You listen to this. This is why the Apostle Paul and the other writers, they kept on and on and on and on with this old theme. Here's the theme. Romans. Come on, guys. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. By the way, if you don't get that, he says it in the next verse. We were justified by his blood. He wants to keep the death of Christ at the center of everything. And it should be the center of everything. It should always be. 
And then what he says after in Romans is if you didn't get it here and you didn't get it there, it says that we were reconciled by God by the death of his cross. What is the Apostle Paul doing? He's saying, if you don't get it this way, I'll tell you that way. And if you don't get it the other way, I'll tell you again. You know, come on, preachers. This is it. If, they, if our people don't get it one way, tell them another way until they get it because it is the thing that transforms life unless you get the death of Jesus Christ into your life and into your being. It will not help your marriage. It will not help your work. It will not help how you are in the church. It is this thing that inspires us to do everything else. This wonderful thing. It is the death that transforms us and the resurrection. That's the way that we are. That's the way that we catch it. That's the way that we do what we do. That's why the Apostle Paul keeps going. That's why he says to Peter, Peter, he bore our sins in his body on the cross. They already knew this. Christ died for sins once and for all, the just for the unjust. The heart of us is that Christ gave and gave himself as a ransom for many. He died for the many. This is how he serves us. The cross is is the epitome of servanthood. When you look at the cross, let me ask you, does it make your heart race? Or does Tina Turner coming round on you know the the last world and eternal tour? It, it can be like that, you know, can it? Hey, I got I got tickets to go see Phantom of the Opera <laughs> and all that sort of stuff. Well, I'm just going to church tomorrow, but Monday I'm going to see the Phantom of the Opera. What is that? What is that? We've got to catch it, guys. It's when we catch this. Philippians 2, verse 6 to 8. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of a man, being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. What defines Jesus' humility is a conscious act on your behalf, on my behalf, to make himself lowly. I will do this for them. I will, what did we sing? Lay aside my majesty. I will purposely serve, take the position of lowly so that I can serve them. I will take the position of a servant role for the good of others. Think of these things. Just catch some of these things. It says in these, these phrases, the, those verses, he emptied himself. Theologians argue about this. I'll give you mine and then I'll run on because before hands go up and say, what if? Okay. He emptied himself. He emptied himself of his divine right to be free from the abuse or suffering. He didn't have to be. He was king of kings and lord of lords. But he, he left those rights aside. He said, no, I will leave those. I, w- I will not do that. So that I can take on abuse and suffering. So that I can serve 
my people by serving them so that they would not know that. He took the form of a servant. He became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross to serve us. I find sometimes some of the songs just get to me. I don't know whether you feel that with worship. They just get under your skin sometimes. And sometimes I find that I can't even... I, I, I just find that I can't sing it. I, I start off the first two lines and it just sort of gets me. Because I, it's just that you catch the depth of what the person is writing about and what Jesus has done for you. And I, I find the song, O oh, to See the Dawn, a bit like that. Now, I know Stuart Townend uh, wrote it with, what's his name, Getty, I think. Is that right? And I know that it's created a great controversy about all sorts of different things in regard to the atonement. But, But why are we debating theology when this is about me? Because when he, when he writes this, doesn't it move you? This is the way that he served you. He says this, Oh, to see the pain written on your face. That's mine. That is mine. Bearing the awesome weight of sin. Mine. And it goes on, and you just think of this, every bitter thought, that's history, every bitter thought, before, during, afterwards, every bitter thought is placed on him. Even my bitter thoughts. Then you think of this one, every evil deed. Placed on him. Crowning, what? Crowning your blood-stained brow. What, what crowns a person? Well, he, like last week, well, he won the London Marathon. That crowned him. What crowns Jesus? Pain. Weight of sin, bitter thought, evil deed. And then there's the link, isn't it? Mine. For me. The other verse. Oh, to see my name. Where are my name written? Written written in the wounds. My name is in the Lamb's book of life. And there is a table set in heaven with my name upon it that was given to me because of his wounds. For through your suffering, I am free. Death is crushed. Where to? Death. Life is mine to live. One, through your selfless love. This the power of the cross. Christ became sin for us took the blame, bore the wrath, we stand forgiven at the cross. Let me answer you, who will ever serve you like that? 
Who will ever serve you like that? Who can ever? So I don't know. I want to ask. I don't know. Let me ask the question. Are you in the many that's described in Mark chapter 10? Were you ransomed when Jesus died? Is that song about you? Are you still living under the power of sin when you might be free? Are you moving towards eternal life or are you moving towards eternal punishment? Please seriously consider this. I used this at Easter, but I'm just going to go back again because it, it just struck me again. Let me try and explain this to you in closing. John 15:13. Jesus answers the question about whom he ransomed. He says, Greater love has, the, has no one than this, than one lay down his life for his friends. That is, that greater love has no one than this, that one ra- um, ransoms his friends. So here's the question. Are you a friend of Jesus? Have you been ransomed? What does it mean to be a friend of Jesus? The next verse tries to explain it. It says, if you're friends, you will do what I commanded to you. This is not how you become a friend. This is how you act when you are. This is not the way that you become a friend. It's evidence that you are ransomed. The ransom is what frees you, is paid for you, empowers you, so that you can do what Jesus commanded you to do. First you need to know that you're ransomed and then you can enjoy the freedom that comes with that ransom. So we've come right back to where we've started. Jesus didn't come to be served but to serve you so that you could become his friend. You can't serve your way into the friendship of Jesus. He makes that clear. You can't be a slave and a friend at the same time. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I've called you friends. For all that I've heard from the Father I've made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. So whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Jesus didn't come to employ you as slave labor for his kingdom. He he doesn't need it. He came in search of those who would become his friends. And he came in search of those who would trust him to serve them. I don't know whether you can hear that. He came. Let's put it the other way. Why don't you trust him to serve you by giving, by allowing him to give you eternal life. What this does is that it says this, everyone who trusts Jesus says, I'm going to find my satisfaction in you. I'm not going to find it, Silas, in a badminton match. Win that you might. But actually, even if I won, 
my satisfaction would still be in Jesus. It is by saying that I'm trusting you to supply all my needs for the rest of my life. That I'm going to trust you to be my guide and my forgiver, my lover for the rest of my life. That you're going to be the one that's most important to me. I noticed that in the footballing world at the moment, the most important thing that will occur is probably a football game and then the World Cup. And some of the, the, the big decisive things at the moment is the Wembley surface. And I, I was listening to a radio programme travelling <coughs> down to Shrewsbury and uh, it takes about 50 minutes to drive to Shrewsbury from my house. And I just thought, I laughed, because when I switched the radio off as I arrived in the car park at Barnabas, we were still talking about the, the Wembley service, surface. And I just thought, it is really interesting that on the radio, we're talking about grass. That actually, the, the semi-finals had gone... To, uh, had, had gone through for the FA Cup final and they'd talked about grass. As if the most important thing was grass. I happened to be, as I arrived in Shrewsbury, uh, see a newspaper on the side on the, and at the back of it was the Wembley grass. I just thought, what have we come to when the most important thing in our life is whether the Wembley grass is good enough or not? Why? But we all have our own grasses and things that are important to us. Why do that and settle for second best when you can have this magnificent one who gave himself to serve for you? What will create your friendship with him is that Jesus will choose you and open his heart to you The essence of becoming a friend in Jesus is that you hear the words of him and you respond. You see the work of him and you respond. He wakens your faith. You see that he died for you and it becomes a spectacular thing in your life. You appreciate that God loves you. You realize that you are on a journey of eternity and no longer is it just about the moment. I want to ask you, if you're not a Christian, why don't you respond to the servant this morning and allow him to serve you by giving eternal life. I wonder whether the musicians could come forward. I want to sing Oh to See the Dawn. Not because I've chosen it, <coughs> because I think it demonstrates to us how he has served us. And I want to ask whether you, if you would like to be prayed for, whether you'd like to come uh, down to the front. You can't go to the back really, because if you'll end up in the ceiling, I think. But 
I want to ask you whether you'd like to come to the front. And I want to pray for two things this morning. If you are not a Christian, I'd like to pray for you. And uh, give you an opportunity to respond to this wonderful gospel. But also, I want to pray for people who live, as it were, quite self-sufficient. They, they sort of, you know, they know that they can do life and all that sort of stuff. But actually, you know, the purpose of your Christian life is that Jesus would help you. And I'm probably not explaining this very well, but you will know if I'm speaking to you. You're the, you are the people that sort of can do life without Jesus. You are a Christian, but you're fairly self-sufficient in yourself. You know that you're fairly capable and that sort of stuff. But I think that what Jesus would want to come and do with you this morning is meet with you and demonstrate to you afresh that he's able to serve you. And he wants what you should do is this, is that you would say, look, I, I need you. When you became a Christian, you said that to Jesus. I need you. And actually, it does not change. So I want people that feel they need to renew that. Jesus, I need you to serve me for the rest of my life. I would like you to come and we will uh, pray with you uh, this morning. Shall we stand and sing, O to see the dawn?